All right, well, good morning, everyone. It's good to be with you uh, this Sunday to gather together as people of God to study God's Word. Uh, just uh, so if some of you haven't met me yet, my name is Matthew Bowerman. Uh, my wife, uh, Lauren, and I moved here from Birmingham, Alabama about a month ago. So we have uh, just been here for a short while. We're very happy to be here. I've just come on staff here at Redemption. Um, I'm helping Mark out as much as I can, doing some of the preaching, going through the uh, eldership uh, candidacy with a couple other men in the church, and uh, hopefully as part of Redemption Parker's vision to be a church that plants churches, I will hopefully be able to one day be sent out from here to go plant another church. Uh, so just for myself, for, for Lauren, we are very happy to be here. We felt very welcomed here. Uh, so I was at this door that's usually my spot each week, so I, I feel like I know half of you, the other people that come in through this way. Uh, I'd love to uh, meet you at some point, so please feel free to come up and introduce yourself. Uh, so our text for this morning, you can go ahead and turn there in your Bible, is Luke 22. Luke 22. Luke is the third book in the New Testament after Matthew and Mark. Luke 22, verses 31 34. So as you're turning there, I'll let you in on a little uh, what goes on in the mind of a pastor whenever he gets up to preach. Sometimes I, I try and look out and imagine what is going on in the lives of everyone that I'm looking at. And so I know that it's Sunday and we're at church, and so you walk through the door, you put on a smile, you, you try and present your best self because like you're a Christian, you've got that joy like you're supposed to be happy and uh, you're just always supposed to be in, in that good Christian mood. All right? and, so, and so I try and imagine like what, what is going on like actually in people's hearts right now. How many families when you were in the car driving to church got in a fight and then it was just a long silence in the car and you got out, you walked in and you had to turn it on. Or, <laughs> thank you, or I, I wonder how many people had such a long week at work last week that when they got home, they either neglected their family or said something they shouldn't have, and now it's just a mess at home. Or how many people cleared their browser history last night, hoping that would clear their soul as well to prepare them for worship today. And so, so I, I know that we're at church, and, but I, I try and imagine what is actually going on. And so as a pastor, the, the ideal, the idealistic and unrealistic part of me hopes that everybody in here had a spiritually successful week, that all of us grew in our love and knowledge of God and his word, that we are loving our neighbor and our family, that we are worshiping well, that we look more like Jesus today than we did the last time that we gathered. But because that's often not the case for me, I doubt it's the case for many of us sometimes. And so a, a lot of times we come into church and we feel the weight of the sin that we committed over the last week. We feel guilty. We feel shame. Our heart is cold. Our love for God, he, he feels distant. We, we even feel like a fraud sometimes amongst the people of God. And so if you are feeling that way today, or if you have ever felt that way, then this sermon, this passage is for you. 
This passage that we are going to study today is about our spiritual failures. It is about what goes on in our hearts when we fall. And it is about the power of Christ to sustain us and keep us and to bring us back when we do. So with that said, let's read our text. Again, Luke 22, starting at verse 31. Uh, This passage falls within Holy Week. Jesus is about to be betrayed. This is the night before he goes to the cross. And so these are some of his last words. This is one uh, last teaching moment for his disciples. So let's listen carefully to what he said. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you've turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. So in the opening words of this conversation, Jesus brings up a subject that is very misunderstood both in our culture and in many of our churches. It's a topic that kind of makes us uncomfortable. He immediately starts talking about Satan and demons and demonology. And so uh, a lot of this sermon is going to focus on that, the realities that we face there. And I agree with C.S. Lewis, who once said that uh, there are two equal and opposite errors that you can make when it comes to demons. One is to disbelieve in them. Two is to believe in them, but to have an unhealthy interest or even fear of them. Okay, so, so error number one is to disbelieve in Satan and demons. And, and this is probably the majority of our culture's view. I think most people in the world today uh, would view Satan or demons as a remnant from a more primitive time. They would think that when our ancestors didn't have uh, our modern understanding of science, our modern technology, that we didn't know how to interpret the bad things that went on in the world. And so when there was you know, a, a natural disaster or a life-threatening illness, when, when we couldn't interpret the bad things that we saw, we had to create this theological category to, to offload all of the bad stuff. And so I think that's how most of the world views Satan is just this category that we created to take blame off of ourselves. And I think Satan is very happy with this notion that he doesn't exist. If you don't think that a battle is going on, if you don't think that a war is waging, then you're not on your guard. You're very vulnerable. You are very open to attack. And so I think Satan is perfectly happy with the, the modern notion that he doesn't exist. Like our, our culture's disbelief kind of gives him an invisibility cloak by which he can just walk around and, and wreak his havoc. He operates in plain sight. So that's error number one is to disbelieve in him. Error number two is to believe but to have an, an unhealthy interest or, or unnecessary fear of him. And, and this belief is more common inside of the church, uh, which makes sense. Uh, But this person believes that every bad thing that happens to them is a a direct result of spiritual 
warfare. So I, I one time knew a girl who, who was kind of like this. She one time got out her iPad. She wanted to read her Bible. And she tried to turn it on. It didn't, didn't turn on. She plugged it in. didn't turn on. And her first thought was, Satan's attacking me. I, I want to read my Bible. I want to do a good godly thing. But because it won't turn on, like, this must be a demonic attack. And I think most people would just say, it's broken, take it to the Apple store, like, get it fixed, okay? And so, so what's wrong with that view is that it ascribes too much power to Satan. It kind of gets into the realm of actually worshiping Satan for more than he is. And, and so as we work through this story in which Satan is a primary character, let, let's keep a few things in mind. Satan is not omnipresent. He, he is not everywhere. If he is here, he cannot be over there. He, he is not all-powerful. His power is limited. He is not God. God is the only one who is omnipresent and all-powerful. So, so I don't think we should be the people who think that Satan is under every rock and that everything that bad happens to us is from him. Sometimes we just experience the negative consequences of living in a fallen world. So we're going to hold that up, that Satan is not all-powerful, but we do have to believe rightly that he is very powerful. If you read the New Testament, Satan is often referred to as the God of the age, or the prince of the power of the air. Jesus himself even called him the ruler of this world. Isaiah 14 kind of really takes this really far, and it says that Satan is like the morning star, the sun of dawn. I take that to mean that Satan is actually very beautiful. So, so if your idea of Satan is this small, red, impish figure with horns and a pitchfork, we have to get that out of our mind. That, that is not the biblical view. Biblically, Satan is very cunning and powerful and persuasive and deceptive. And so when Jesus turned to Peter and said, Satan demanded to have you, that would have sent shivers down Peter's spine. Okay, okay but what does it mean for Satan to demand to have you? What, what is Jesus getting at? Like, Peter, Satan demanded to have you. My preaching professor, Dr. Robert Smith Jr., taught me, and I think he's right, that every New Testament doctrine has an Old Testament picture. And so whenever we have a question about doctrine in the, Old, in the New Testament, we can look to the Old Testament to get a fuller picture of what's being talked about. And this doctrine of Satan demanding to have someone, I think, is pictured very well for us uh, in the Old Testament book of Job. If you read the first two chapters of Job, we get to be a fly on the wall for a heavenly council meeting. And so the Lord is seated on his throne high and lifted up, and Satan walks before him. And he says, I've been walking to and fro on the earth looking for someone to devour. And so God sovereignly offers up Job, and he says, have you considered my servant Job? And so Satan makes it his sole aim to break the faith of Job. He throws everything that he has at him. Has at him. First, he attacks his wealth and his money. He knocks down all of his 
uh, storehouses, he kills all of his cattle, his business opportunities and his property is gone. And then Satan comes back, and uh, by God's permission, uh, God allows Satan to take away all of Job's family. And then Satan goes for round number three, and it's always by God's permission, but this time Satan uh, gives Job boils and sores from head to toe. And so for the majority of the book of Job, we just see a sick man sitting in sackcloth on a heap of dust. He's lost everything. His wife turned on him. His friends are giving him insultingly bad advice. And, and this is what it looks like when Satan demands to have someone. He, he tries to shake them to, to take away uh, their money, their family, their, their own physical health. He will do anything to try and make our faith fail, to make us turn our back on God and believe that he doesn't have our back. So Satan did that to Job. He did it to Peter. And he continues to do it today. All right, the, the rest of verse 31 here in Luke 22 kind of gives us, it completes the picture. It gives us a picture of what Satan demanded to have us looks like, that he might sift you like wheat. This is an agricultural term that any farmer in that day would have understood. And, and the picture here is somebody walking up to a stalk of wheat and grabbing it by the hand and shaking it violently. So the wheat and the chaff fall down and it goes into what they call a sieve, kind of what you and I would understand as a strainer. And that too is shaken around so that, you know, the chaff falls through and the wheat remains. The good is separated from the bad. And that's a picture of what Satan does to us when he attacks our faith. He shakes us violently to try and separate us from what we know to be true. He tries to make our faith fail. And he's, he's good at his job. He, he shakes us in a lot of different ways. He can do it through crippling anxiety and depression. He can do it through sexual sin. He can do it through materialism. Anything to try and take our eyes off of God and to make us doubt his promises. He, he can even take the more direct approach and not try and make us doubt the promises of God, but the existence of God himself. And so knowing all of this, knowing who Satan is, knowing what he does, knowing that he is very good at it, what makes you think that you are going to finish in the faith? What is your confidence that your faith is going to finish? Whether you are a young believer and you have the most of your faith journey left ahead of you, or if your hairs are grayer, and you're nearing the end of your faith journey, what is your confidence that you are going to be able to say 2 Timothy 4-7 for yourself, that you have fought the good fight, that you have finished the race, and that you have kept the faith? We get the answer in verse 32. After saying that Satan demanded to have Peter, Jesus says some of the most comforting words that we have in all of Scripture. But... I have prayed for you that your faith would not fail. I have prayed for you that your faith would not fail. Have you ever overheard somebody praying for you? If you're a child, have you ever walked past the open door and heard one of your parents praying for you? If you're a parent or a grandparent, have you ever heard one of your children praying for you? 
What happens when you hear somebody praying for you is it strengthens your faith. Your faith soars because you know that you're not alone. You know that somebody else is interceding on your behalf, that they are fighting with you. And we see that God himself intercedes for us. A lot of times I think we view um, our salvation and our faith of the Lord saving us, giving us faith, and that he just kind of like a watchmaker tunes us, winds us up, and lets us go, and he steps back to watch, it do it, watch us do it on our own. And, and that is absolutely not the case. What we see here is that God himself is actively involved in upholding your faith each and every day. I, I am convinced that if each member of the Trinity weren't night and day interceding to uphold my faith, that I would fall away by the end of the day. I think we all feel, uh, as the old hymn says, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. And the only way that we don't always give in to that temptation is because Christ prays for us. He did it for us 2,000 years ago on Holy Week. Again, on the night before he was betrayed, the night before he went to the cross, what we are celebrating and building towards this week, he was in the garden. And in John 17, we read that, I do not pray only for these disciples who are here with me, but I pray for those who will believe in me through the disciples' word. Meaning that if you are a believer here in 2018 in Parker, Colorado, that Jesus prayed for your faith 2,000 years ago. And he has not stopped. Again, I've preached here two times, and it's never been planned, but providentially the uh, catechism has lined up with what we've been doing, and we asked, like, what is Christ doing right now? He's ascended on the throne, reigning and interceding for us. Hebrews 7, 25 says that Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. We are under attack daily. Our faith is tested. We are shaken and we are, Satan tries to separate us from what we know to be true. And so in that moment that you are going to feel this week, maybe even today, maybe even right now, Know that Jesus is praying for you. He has Satan on a leash. Satan can never go further than God permits him, and he has you in his prayers that your faith will not fail. Right, but before we move forward, we do need to find one of our terms. What does it mean when Jesus prays that our faith would not fail? All right, because if we read the rest of the story, we, we might get confused. Perhaps you know it, but I don't even have to turn a page in my Bible. And after Jesus prays that uh, Peter's faith would not fail, just a few verses later, Peter is denying Jesus. He was asked, do you know Jesus? Do you associate with this man? Do you have faith in him? And three times, Peter said no. So I, th I think that brings up the question, was Jesus' prayer ineffective? Did he lose one of his own? Absolutely not. Because later, if you keep reading in the Bible, we see that Peter repented. 
He wept over his sin, and he returned to the Lord. If you want a picture of someone whose faith failed, look at Judas, who after he betrayed Jesus, went and committed suicide. But Peter betrayed Jesus, and then he came and repented. And so what, what I take uh, Jesus praying that our faith not to fail, meaning is that your faith would not fail ultimately. You will stumble, you will trip, and you will fall. But ultimately, your faith will not fail. Jesus is very good at his job. He's better at it than Satan is at his. Satan tries to get you to fall. Jesus is better, and he prays that you will succeed. So for for our remaining time, I just have one comfort and one application. So first, the comfort. A lot of times, Christians ask the question of, whether or not they can lose their salvation. They wonder, if I'm saved, can I become unsaved? And so I grew up in the South. I grew up I'm in a very traditional Baptist church. And especially at like summer camps we would go off to, um, there would be pastors who would say, if, if you want to have your sins forgiven, if you want to be saved, then you need to walk down the aisle and, and pray a prayer. And so I did it at you know, 12 and 14 and 15, because I remember thinking like, well, I've sinned since the last time that I got saved. Like, I I guess I lost it. I I have to go and do it again. And it really was a spiritual state of fear and uneasiness and being insecure because I didn't know where I stood. And, And this is a biblical question that we have to seriously ask ourselves. Am I saved? The Bible instructs us to, to do this. Philippians 2.12, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. 2 Corinthians 13, verse 5, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. These are serious questions that we have to ask ourselves. And in response to these questions, Scripture does give us ways that we can be sure of our salvation. It says that we can look at the evidences of our salvation. Do I confess that Jesus Christ is the living God, the Son of God? Am I putting sin to death? Do I love my brothers and sisters in the faith? Am I growing in holiness? And if you can answer those questions positively, if you can genuinely say yes to those, then scripture is clear that you can look to those evidences, not as earning your salvation. That is done by Christ, but we can look to those for assurance of our salvation. This uh, assurance of salvation and uh, the keeping power and prayers of Christ is part of what I like to call my pillowcase theology. Uh, These are the things that help me to sleep at night. When I think of the sinful nature of my heart, all the things that I've done, knowing all of the struggles that I will face and knowing how weak that I am, these are some promises that I cling to that Christ will keep me. Philippians 1, 6, that he who began a good work, he won't abandon you. He will bring it to completion in the day of Jesus Christ. Jude 24 and 25, that Jesus Christ is able to keep you from stumbling, to present you with great joy before the Father. John 10, that I am a sheep of the shepherd and that no one can snatch me from his hand. 
I think Paul really gets at this most extensively at the end of pretty much the greatest chapter in the Bible in Romans 8. I'm going to break a rule they teach you in preaching class in seminary. They say don't read long quotes, but I think this one is actually worth it. Paul is addressing the salvation that we've received, and then he asked the question, can anything separate me from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress, persecution or famine, nakedness or danger or sword? And emphatically, he says, no. In all of these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation, Satan's attacks included. Nothing will be able to separate you from the love of God and Jesus Christ, my Lord. And so church, we do have to take our sin seriously. We do have to seriously examine ourselves. And if you have never looked to Christ, if you don't feel that assurance of salvation, look to him now. And if you are, have put your faith in Christ, but you're struggling, know that struggling is a sign of life. Dead people don't struggle. Only, struggling is a sign that Jesus is at work in your life. Now, we do have to take sin seriously, and we do have to weep over it and repent, but know that Christ will hold you. And you can sleep well tonight. Now for the application. So Christ holds us. He holds us fast. He'll keep us. We can't fall away. But what do we do when we do fail in those singular times? Like Christ will keep us to the end, but what about the ups and downs that we have along the way? Let's look at how Christ finished his prayer for Peter. I prayed for you that your faith would not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. So whenever we fail, our natural reaction is to run and hide. Adam and Eve did it in the garden. They went and covered themselves and tried to hide from God. And not much has changed since then. We are the exact same way. We feel guilt. We feel shame. We try and run away from God. And we try and run away from the people of God. But here Christ prays that we would do the exact same opposite. He prays that we would return and strengthen the brothers. You see, what happens when we experience a trial of faith is our faith is strengthened. You don't stay the same through a trial. You don't have anxiety and depression and stay the same. You don't have marriage and parenting troubles and stay the same. You don't get cancer and stay the same. When you go through those trials of faith, you emerge on the other side strengthened. And your faith is strengthened. And instead of running away, we're supposed to run back to God and to the people of God so that we can encourage their faith. So so let me put it like this. Sometimes God will deal with you directly, like he did with Peter in the wee hours of the morning. We, We could say that Peter was one of the 11 believing disciples, and so about one out of 11 times, Jesus will keep your faith like that. But we could also say that 10 out of 11 times, God uses a Peter to return and to strengthen our faith. 
someone to offer us words of strength and grace and wisdom and faith. So to tie this into our church series, for the last few weeks we've been talking about church membership, church covenant, why we need to be committed to our faith journey together. And I think this reason belongs at the top of the list. Following Jesus is costly. There is a very real battle going on, and there are sacrifices and trials and pain. And we can't do it alone. Faith that is on an island, faith that doesn't have support and encouragement around it, will not finish. Faith is a community project. And it is our job as believers to go through the trials of faith and then to return to strengthen our brothers and sisters. And together, by the grace of God, by the keeping power and prayers of Christ, and by the strengthening of one another, we can be confident that we will finish in the faith, that Christ's prayer that our faith would not fail was for us. So let me pray that the Lord would give us grace in these things. Lord, we pray knowing that you pray for us. You hold us fast. You know the trials and the temptations that we go through. Lord, they are numbered and they are limited. And though they hurt, we know that ultimately we cannot fall because you hold us. Would you comfort us with this truth this week? Would you help us to know how secure we are? in your hand. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.